Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Дамы и господа, добро пожаловать в Prevail. Это второй сезон нашей борьбы с криминальными сволочами. Ваш ведущий Грег Олян. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show. Siobhan Scott is here. She wrote a book called The Minds of Mass Killers, Understanding and Interrupting the Pathway to Violence. She is a behavioral therapist who has worked with kids mostly who have either done these shootings or have thought about it and wrote a book about her experiences. And there's a lot of good stuff in this book about what we as a society can do. I recorded the interview on June 18th. My, it was the same day I recorded the Zarina one and my audio was all, it was all crappy. So again, I apologize for that. June 18th was after Uvalde, but it was before Highland Park, which happened on the 4th of July, obviously, this past week. I was hoping that this episode w- wouldn't be so aptly timed, but uh, alas, it is not to be because this is the United States and this is what we do in this country. I'm going to say it again up front. Republicans in Congress, and specifically Republicans in the Senate, have blood on their hands. They want this to happen. If they didn't want it to happen, they would have stopped it by now. Every time there's one of these shootings, every time, it's the same bullshit from these people. Thoughts, prayers, Heidi and I, Elaine and I, whoever it is, whatever two-faced politician it is, Thoughts and prayers, that's all they can offer instead of legislation, which is sitting there in the fucking Senate waiting to be voted on. And they won't allow it because of the fucking filibuster. So remember that too. Filibuster, that's one of the things it's preventing is voting about gun right, uh, gun safety laws. The Republicans in the Senate want this to happen or they would have stopped it by now. They want it. They want it. They want us shooting at each other with weapons of war. I'm not going to parse the legal arguments here because it's 
what the Supreme Court is ruling on makes no sense. It, it's not even – if it was a movie, like the internal logic of the world that they've created is just so stupid that it would – nobody would watch it anymore. There is no logic to what they're doing. Uh, they pick and choose. They cherry pick you know, passages from things to force their own view of things onto the rest of us. And that's what they're doing on the Supreme Court. They call it originalism. It's a it's a an actively reactionary court that is trying to foist its own fascist view onto us. The second word of the Second Amendment is well regulated. Assault weapons did not exist at that time. There is no way that Jefferson and Madison foresaw this, right? It's just they just didn't. And if they did, they'd be like, what the fuck are you guys doing? So for the Supreme Court to embrace this is it's just bullshit, honestly. I think this court is a fucking joke. And uh, it's, it's just a waste of mental energy to even pretend to understand the internal logic because there, there isn't any. They want the society to be this way. They want it. Republicans and Senate want it. Some of these statehouse people want it. Greg Abbott in Texas wants it. Supreme Court wants it. Why? Why do they want it? This is what I cannot figure out. I cannot for the life of me, figure out why any sane, compassionate human would want to live in a society where we cannot go to a fucking 4th of July parade, to an elementary school, to a country music festival, to a Walmart, to a supermarket, to a movie theater, without fear of being gunned down by a fucking weapon of war like we're in goddamn Iraq or something. It's insane. And they can flaunt their two-way this and blah, blah, blah. It doesn't make any sense. More than 90% of Americans don't want this. And we're being ruled by a small minority of crazy people that want blood. Why? Why do they want blood? Is it just because they're getting money? Is it just because the gun lobby and the NRA, which by the way is funded by Russia. We know that money came through the fucking NRA through you know, with Torshin and Maria Butina, Russia, into the NRA, into the coffers of these campaigns, right? These Republican political candidates. Is it just that? Is it just money? Are they willing to sell out the lives, literally the lives of just innocent people to make a few bucks? Is that all that it is? Or is it some sort of view of society that they're driving towards? What do they want? I know they hate women. I know they hate gay people. I know they hate trans people. I know they hate black people and natives and people of color. I know all this. Oh, and poor people. They hate poor people, no matter what race they are. They want to bring it back to 1776 when it's just white, male, presumably straight, propertied, rich guys running everything. But what purpose does it serve then to have these weapons? I just don't get it. It doesn't make sense. Are they trying to get us to be afraid to go out? You know, it's one thing to say there's a curfew. Everybody's got to stay in their house. People aren't going to do that. They're going to go outside. It's another thing if people are afraid to go outside. Is that what they're trying to do? They're just trying to make us all afraid to go outside? Are they trying to make us surrender our First Amendment right to peaceful assembly? I don't know. I honestly don't know. I cannot figure it out. If somebody can figure it out, let me know. Do they want a huge bloodbath so that we can they can declare martial law? I don't know. 
Is it one of those things where they want it to be so bad that like DeSantis can come in and, and promise to fix it and then fix it because it would be easy to fix? Because again, Republicans in the Senate could fix this tomorrow if they wanted to, and they don't. They don't want to, and they don't fix it. I don't know. This is, I keep banging my head against the wall about this because I can't figure it out. Even when I try to put my conspiracy hat on, I can't figure it out. Even the conspiracy doesn't make any sense. It's just dumb. And maybe that's it. Maybe they're just fucking dumb. I mean, Clarence Thomas, Alito, these, these are not bright guys. They don't have great imaginations. They see the world in some very limited, stupid way, and they're too dumb to realize it. So, you know, I don't know. I really don't get it. And I wish I did. But I'm grateful to Siobhan Scott for coming on the show because the guns, the access to the guns is one of the things. It's the most important thing, as she says. It is obvious. If you can't buy an AR-15, you're not going to gun down all these people. But if we can't do that, if we're prevented from doing that, what else can we do? What can we do? And she's got great suggestions. And the way that you can spot these killers before they strike right? Because there's always a pattern, what she calls the pathway to violence. And the key is to identify the pathway to violence and to interrupt it. You interrupt the pathway and you stop something before it happens. Again, we recorded this on June 18th before the Highland Park tragedy. And it was interesting for me to listen to it this week as I was editing it and apply the things that she was saying to what just happened. And this guy, this killer, this monster, his name is Crimo. I mean, I know we're not supposed to say their names, but his name is Crimo. He fits the profile. I mean, he is the profile. Everything that she says applies to this guy, including opportunities that his father and other people had that they should have spotted that this was going to happen and they didn't do anything. So one of the things that I hope everybody gets out of this podcast is what we can do, like how we can spot this stuff. Because that's, you know, if we're going to live under fascist Republican rule, we can at least be able to spot these mass killers before they happen. I mean, that's the least we can do, right? Anyway, it's a great discussion. I learned a lot. Again, I apologize for the bad audio. She doesn't have bad audio. She sounds great. So it's, it's good. She's the one making all the points anyway. And I'm excited to bring this to you. I wish that the timing hadn't been so perfect, but again, this is America. This is now what we do. You know, this is what we're known for now. Just can't take care of our own shit. And it's sad. It's very sad. So uh, we'll be right back with Siobhan Scott.
Siobhan Scott, welcome to the Prevail Podcast. Thanks for having me. I have had on this podcast academics who write books about fascism, and I feel bad because they've they've written these books about something really horrible, and now those books are incredibly urgent and relevant, and you fall into that category too, because you've written a book called The Minds of Mass Killers, Understanding and Interrupting the Pathways to Violence. And there's been a lot of these things lately, it feels like. Uh, we're recording this on June 18th. We're, what, three weeks removed from Uvalde, and probably that's already begun to recede into the consciousness. God knows if we'll get any legislation out of it. Um, there's a lot to cover. I wanted to ask about the book and the politics and, and, and the mental health aspects. But before we do, tell us a little bit about you. What's your background? Um, and how did you get interested in this topic and what prompted you to write this book when you did? Okay. Um, I have been a licensed mental health therapist since 1991. And since then, I've worked full-time all these years. So I've worked with thousands of clients who have been victims of violence and also many hundreds who have been perpetrators of violence. In addition to being in private practice, I'm licensed in Oregon and California in both places. I've also been a member of multidisciplinary treatment teams where I've done intensive um, outpatient therapy and supervision with people who have committed violent crimes, often people with severe mental illness. So I come at this from um, two points of view. One is as a clinician, and then the other one is as a mom, because when Columbine happened, I had kids in high school, and that really changed. It was that kind of watershed moment that just changed how we view safety in schools yeah. in particular. After that, we had, of course, a, a number of school shootings. And then we had the big one again, Sandy Hook, which was just horrendous. And at that point, my practice, my private practice was flooded with teachers who were having panic attacks, understandably, just as they are again now. Right. Um, and of course, over the years, I've also worked with young children who have been having anxiety problems, often after lockdown drills in schools or when there are other events that they hear about on the news. And then I've also, over the years, worked with a lot of um, adolescent boys who had made threats and they had you know, not committed the, the crime, but they had made threats. I'm going to go Columbine is often the kinds of things they would say, and they would get referred to me for therapy to try to sort out, is this a credible threat? What's going on with this kid? And what do we do? So I have an extensive background, you know, in, in the area of mental health counseling and working with people who have committed murder or who have made threats about possibly doing that. And so I know a lot of the the information that gets spread, particularly in the news media and on social media, is not true. And in 2019, there had been three attacks that happened, boom, 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 sort of like what we've had recently. Um, one was in El Paso, Texas, in the Walmart. One was in Dayton, Ohio, in the downtown area, the restaurant district. And the other one was in Gilroy, California, at the Garlic Festival. And again, social media was flooded with misinformation. So I was really upset. And I just sat down and rather than arguing with everyone on social media and saying, no, it's not all mental illness, you know, no, it doesn't happen for no reason. Yes, we can understand it. I sat down and wrote a Medium article and posted that um, with some basic facts about mass killers. And a few months later, that got shared quite a bit. A few months later, um, a book editor contacted me. I'd published a book with them previously. And they said, we saw this article that you wrote. Would you think about writing a book for us? 
So I said, sure, and spent uh, about 20 hours a week over the next two years putting the book together. And it's been out for about six months now. Great. Well, thank you for, you know, lending your expertise to this. I, I, it must be difficult to, um, you know, to do what you do just in the day to day to process this, this kind of stuff. And we could talk, th- uh, talk about that a little bit more later, too. But um, so what's the overarching theme of the book? You mentioned before about things that are wrong. Like when, when you sat down to bang out the Medium article, what was the impetus before it? Is there any one thing that makes you crazy about something that people get wrong? Yeah, yeah. Probably the biggest thing that they get wrong is that there's nothing we can do. And, and then the, the thing that goes with that is we don't know why this happens. We do know why it happens. We know exactly why it happens. If you look at the data, if you look at the research, um, the FBI, the Secret Service uh, criminologists, we've known for many years why this happens. And of course, if we say we don't understand and there's nothing we can do, it's going to continue to happen, which is what we're living with now, a very frightened country because it continues to happen. So I think for me, it's a way of educating people that we're not as powerless as we think we are. And if we don't like what's going on, there's all sorts of things we can do to interrupt the pathway. Because, you know, nobody, the other myth is, the person just snapped. He seemed completely normal and then he just snapped and nobody ever just snaps. There's always a, a pathway to violence. And this comes from the FBI's work. It's, it's not news, but if we can learn what the steps on the pathway are and have some specific ways of interrupting that pathway, then we would not end up with these things happening. So I think we can come at it from a public health point of view. You know, the public health rule is if it can be predicted, it can be prevented. And we certainly can predict that this continues to happen. And therefore, can we just get away from politics and look at how do we prevent this? I wonder if, you know, one thing that might come out of this political moment is that, because I think the Republicans are obviously, they're so in with the gun lobby and all of that stuff. I I don't want to get into that because it's very obvious that they will go to great lengths to blame anything and everything doors, the need to kill feral pigs, um, you know, all kinds of things to not blame the guns. But one of the talking points that was circulating in the wake and the aftermath of Uvalde was mental health and, you know, mental health this, mental health that. And um, as we're recording this, I think the bill is not out yet that these senators are working on. I'm sure it will be the weakest of weak sauce, but there does seem to be some um, desire on the part of Republicans to look at mental health, if for no other reason than to be able to say that they did something and blame something right. other than guns. Right. And maybe that can be pivoted into something that can, you know, use this FBI information to, uh, to, to, to stop these people from doing what you say. So let's talk about that. The, the subtitle of the book is The Pathways of Violence. I, I, when I'm reading the subtitle, I think pathways like, you know, the path of life, but also the neuropathways in the brain. I don't know if it's intended to be a double meaning like that. So what do you mean by the pathways of violence? What are the warning signs? And then how do we interrupt that? The pathway to violence always starts with the collection of grievances, and that's considered phase one. And I can speak quite a bit about grievances. Maybe I'll do that when I talk about personality in a minute. But basically, that's when the person starts accumulating the list of wrongs. And we see that with the recent shooting in Buffalo, where 
uh, black people were targeted. And so, you know, the racist extremist blames everything that's wrong in the country or everything that's wrong, even in their personal life on whatever the target is. And so it may be Jewish people, it may be black people, it may be women, um, it may be immigrants, but they pick a target and they collect grievances. After um, they start that thinking pattern, over time, they begin to fantasize what would I do? And this is very often internet fueled where people who um, find violence very appealing, um, meet up in groups on 4chan, Discord, wherever, and they start talking about mass shootings, they talk about violence. And so the person with this propensity takes their grievances, they start fantasizing. And then if the pathway continues, this may be over weeks, months, it may even go over a decade or more, it can go on for years, the person starts fantasizing about a specific plan. And so the planning is phase three. And this is when the person may pick anniversary dates, they may stu study other mass killers or mass shooters, what have they done? Um, they accumulate weapons, they start to um, plan an attack. And then the final two phases are the actual, actual breach of the location and the attack. And so it progresses. And of course, ideally, we want to interrupt that back at the beginning phase, you know, before someone ever gets into plotting an actual attack of violence. But if that doesn't work, you know, you can interrupt any time. And if somebody is already planning the attack, generally they're announcing these things to people they know, their inner circle, or they're leaving hints all over social media, calling themselves the next school shooter, which some of them have been so brazen to do that. That's when we say, see something, say something, and report. Anytime somebody threatens violence, even if they say it's a joke or you think they're not going to really do it, we all need to say something. And there are a variety of ways to do that. But I think one of the myths that you touched on is that, um, you know, as you said, we're talking so much now about funding mental health. And above all people, I support funding mental health and having more mental health therapists available in public schools. We, we typically do not have that available now. We've got to do a better job supporting teachers. We can't expect them to reparent our kids and be mental health therapists at the same time they're teaching them algebra. But the majority of mass killers are not mentally ill people. Only 10% of mass killings are committed by someone who has a psychotic disorder. And by that, I mean they're non-rational, they're hearing delusions, um, hallucinations, and they're motivated by um, thoughts that are not under their logical control. That's not the majority, right? That's a small percentage. It's significant. We want to help those people. I have known people who were psychotic and committed mass shootings, and it's a tragedy. So the more we can support educating people about mental health, the more resources, the better. But the majority of mass killers, it's a culmination of their own personality factors, social factors, and that primarily now is the internet a culture that venerates warriors and that leads young men to believe that this is how you gain social status. Um, and then the easy access to weapons of war, which is what's really unique about America. Because other countries have mentally ill people and young men with problematic personality traits, but they don't have the easy access to guns. And that's what's different here. Yeah, no, it's, it, it's a, a, a travesty that we haven't addressed this, but yeah, I'm preaching to the choir here with you yeah. and literally anybody listening to this. 
Um, you talked about the personality types and the personality traits. Can you can you go into that a little bit more? Like what? Definitely. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. This is really important. And a lot of people um, will when I start talking about this, they say, oh, that reminds me of my brother in law. Or, you know, I know people like this. So it's also important to stress when I talk about these things that they all exist on a continuum. And some people have a little bit of this going on and other people have a lot and it's really the degree of what's happening so the first one is paranoia and a paranoid person is when we think of that kind of isolated suspicious loner you know mm -hmm. um, but they always think that someone is doing something to them or a category of people are doing something to them and so they start this thinking process often in the teen years and it's again the idea that I have problems in my life or I, I'm unhappy or I have no direction or whatever. And it's the damn immigrants or it's women. You know, I don't have a girlfriend, women. There's something wrong with women. So the paranoid person is projecting their internal distress outward and they're blaming other people for this. And it becomes a thinking style. Um, the one that goes with that is narcissism. And the narcissist feels like they're entitled and they're better than everyone else, they're special, and they're acutely sensitive to being slighted because they believe they should always have special treatment. So when you combine paranoia, narcissism, oh, the narcissist is also a performer. They like attention, yeah. they like the spotlight. Um, and then you combine a dose of psychopathy with that. The psychopath is the person who's not troubled with the conscience. They don't have empathy for other people. They have the capacity for violence and cruelty. And often there's a sadistic element too. These are the folks that kill animals. Um, and a lot of these guys have that in their history as well. So those are the, the primary, I mean, I can break them down more, but those are the primary categories. So when you have someone who's got the paranoid thinking, the narcissistic sense of entitlement and feeling special, I'd rather be infamous than ignored, you know, is right. a direct quote from one of the mass killers. And then you combine that with the psychopath's capacity for cruelty, easy access to weapons. That's, that's a formula for a person who can be very dangerous. Do you think is, is psychopathy learned or is psychopathy um, just something you're born with? What, or do we not know? <laughs> yeah, well, we don't we can't say definitively in every case, but there has been so much research in the last couple of decades about personality and really our um, babies are born with a lot of innate temperament traits that develop into personality traits. And so we can say that there's a huge genetic component. And certainly with psychopathy, you know, we've done a lot of twin studies with babies that were separated at birth and not reared together. Psychopathy is highly heritable. Um, and so how I look at that in working with kids, um, there's flexibility with children and even with teenagers that you don't see with adults. And some kids definitely need to be taught more um, assertively about having empathy and compassion for other people because it doesn't come naturally to them. And we really need to help them learn to put the brakes on their worst impulses. And so I don't think it's, it's born a psychopath, always a psychopath, but there are definitely some people who are more prone to that genetically than other people are. And we have to really work then with parenting and the environment to help them gain better control over their worst impulses. Are mass killings more prevalent now than they have been in the past? It feels like they are, but that they are. might be, okay. It feels like since Columbine. Yeah, yeah. 
yeah, they really, you know, there had been a few prior to Columbine, but Columbine was because we had the video footage from inside the school about that. And we had, you know, cable news was going all the time. And there were so many false narratives that kind of spun them into these, oh, poor bullied guys that turned into folk heroes with this huge internet following that continues to today. It's really... Um, amplified since then. And in the past five years, when we look at the data, I mean, I've got spreadsheets everywhere with data. And we are seeing an incredible acceleration in not only the numbers of mass killings, usually shootings, but not always, you know, they can use bombs, they can drive into people with vans, you know, which has happened. Um, a tremendous number in the increase, and also they're becoming more deadly. And a lot of that we can say is due to the AR-15, um, the Las Vegas killings at the country music festival, absolutely horrendous carnage, one person, Pulse nightclub, one person. Um, so they're, they're increasing in frequency and becoming more deadly over time. And moving into more locations, so there have been a lot of shootings in churches, synagogues, mosques, I mean, we had Buffalo, which was the supermarket. We've had yeah. Walmart, El Paso, um, another church in California. The um, you know Asian man killed other Asian people. And then there was a, a church shooting this week in Alabama with elderly people. So it really seems to be spreading, even though it's traditionally been thought to be the young, angry white man. It's, it's increasing into other ethnic groups. And um, it's a very, very serious problem right now. Do you think that COVID has anything to do, or the quarantine, I should say, has anything to do with it? To, it, it? It seems to have been like stalled somewhat. And then once the pandemic lifted, then people seem to be making up for lost time or whatever. I, I think that's it exactly, is that during the pandemic, there just were not the opportunities to get out and find large groups. And, and certainly now things are escalating again. And the pandemic also, I think, underreported is is a major major uh bane to people's mental health especially young people i think i mean yeah yeah one of my big concerns is the amount of time that isolated kind of miserable teenagers are spending online and if i had one message to parents right now you've got to know what your kids are doing online because I, I don't think your average adult i mean i spend a lot of time online right but i'm looking at you know fun things on facebook or whatever i'm not going into extremist hate-filled communities where people are posting images of decapitated animals and um, talking about what they want to do to women or minorities they don't like. Um, I think if parents knew where their kids are going online, many of them would be absolutely horrified. And, you know, I, I raised three kids. I understand it's really hard to know what they're up to all the time. But the Buffalo um, shooter recently I mean, he had a whole arsenal in his bedroom and his parents had absolutely no idea that he was into white supremacy and was plotting mass murder. And he had military gear being delivered to his house, you know? So if, if we can do anything right now, if we could change the easy accessibility of, of guns and if we could get younger people connected outside of the home and offline involving them in real world activities that would just be wonderful we'd have a much healthier culture yeah that doesn't seem to be the way i think that again the, the quarantine has uh you know accelerated the way that 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 young people go online and and the way that that being online um 
plays a major part in their social lives. Um, plus also the technology aspect. I have two kids who are in high school and you know, were in high school during the pandemic. And like, you know, you have kids and you have, um, you know, high school teachers using technology suddenly right. out of the blue, Right. the kids are going to win that battle every time. They They're going to figure out all of the workarounds and all of the shit yeah. before like, you know, somebody knows, you know, how to turn the camera on on their laptop or whatever. So right. I, I feel like that's part of it too. Yeah. And one of, one of the other things I stress to parents is one of the biggest protective factors for our kids, whatever the danger zone, whether, you know, it's, it's violence or other kinds of things that they can get into that we worry about is really being attuned to them, understanding them, you know, as much as we can. I mean, kids want to be secretive. That's part of, you know, becoming an adult is going off and doing their own thing, not telling their parents every little thing that occurs in their lives. That's normal. But um, one of the quotes, from the Buffalo shooter is my parents don't understand me at all. They don't know what I do. And, you know, the more kids feel like they're loved, they're tuned in with their families. Um, it's just a protective factor. You know, I really worry about kids that are isolated. Yeah. Yeah. Because what happens, they find a peer group online, but the peer group online may be a bunch of neo-Nazis, you know, yeah. that they would never run into in their local community. And so when you get into these online groups, these rather perverse kind of cultures where murder or other toxic things are normalized, whatever it is with the incels, there's a lot of sexual sadism that's normalized. And this becomes something where, where the person, you know, particularly a teenager, they're not encouraged to have other points of view, you know, so they bond with a really toxic peer group. And those people, those groups cultivate that they go, they look for kids that are disaffected to exactly. try to recruit them and to use a word that has now been coerced by the other side, groom them into doing these things because exactly. they, you know, there's a way for it. And misogyny, it seems to me, is such a such a big part of all of this. I mean, I don't know what the statistics are. Overwhelming. I, I can't think of a single mass killer that's a woman off the top of my head. Right. It's all guys. Yeah. So what what does that mean? Is that is that have to do with masculinity? Does it have to do with um, the, like rejection of, of by women? Does it have to do with repressed feelings of of uh, homoeroticism? some kind of stew of all of that? What, what you think? I think it's quite a stew. Yeah, but we definitely live in a, a culture where masculine power is obtained. I mean, we look at our entertainment is obtained through violence. You know, yeah. guns solve problems, not in real life, but in the media they do. Mm -hmm. And I think that young men are under unique pressures, not faced by young women, about proving themselves. And guys commit 90% of all violent crime. It's not, not you know, um, conducted by females. There have only been um, just a handful, I believe four occasions where a woman was involved in a mass shooting. And two of those, they were a companion with a man and they were the, the wife or girlfriend. In two other cases, there were females, but 98 point something percent of the time, it has been all males. I think even the targeting, like I, when you were talking before, I thought of the plot to kidnap the uh, governor of Michigan by those guys. And that seems yeah. to be highly fueled by misogyny, even though a lot of them had girlfriends yeah. and stuff. But I don't think that the the plan would have been quite as sadistically uh, product of fantasy if she was um, a, a man or if she was older and didn't look like she looked. Exactly. You know, I think yeah. that's, that definitely fuels the, the fantasy aspect. Of it. 
Yeah, the sexual sadism is really troubling and really problematic. And that's another thing that in my work, I've certainly run into a lot of that. I've worked with a lot of rapists and I know the thinking process that goes with that. But I think, again, um, even with the porn that kids get into, um, it's not just Playboy, you know, and if people knew what is out there and how much of this are, are my kids absorbing, I think it's just really important that we be aware of it. So... Okay, I want to talk, I want to go into the solutions part of the show before we get bogged down. But we have to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Siobhan Scott. Hey, everybody, it's LB. This episode of Prevail is brought to you by our new Friday night show, The 5-8, airing live on YouTube at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. On The 5-8, Greg and I discuss five topics for eight minutes each, and you never know who might drop by. So pour yourself a cocktail or a cup of tea and join us tonight on The 5-8. You can subscribe on our YouTube channel, The 5-8, F-I-V-E, and the number eight. See you later. And now, back to the show. Okay, we're back with Siobhan Scott. Very lengthy break that we had. Um, now, you wrote about the language that we that we use. Okay, when we and by we I mean the media. When something like this happens, there's a terrible mass killing somewhere. There's certain words that get tossed around. Obviously, the Republicans have their, you know, thoughts and prayers and and their uh, bullshit, frankly, uh, talking points that they use to the point where after Uvalde, some of them it was almost like they cut and pasted a boilerplate hopes and prayers thing. These pol these right wing politicians. So. What's wrong with the language and how should we address the language? Like what words should we be using? Well, the, the thing that you and I are modeling today is we try to talk about the location where the crime happened. We talk about the crime, but we don't use their names because um, they really do like seeing their names and their photographs all over the place. And so we've learned over the years that we want to de-incentivize that and not continue to promote a cult of personality um, and continue the, the fantasy that they have that everybody's thinking about them in particular. Um, as far as other language, I would see that um, the mental illness myth, we sort of need to bust that and help people understand the difference between psychosis, which is a disorder of the brain that can be, uh, we can certainly reduce or eliminate the symptoms with medication. And what is personality pathology? A lot of mental health clinicians don't understand that very well. And that's one of the areas that I'm working in as well is helping um, mental health professionals understand how to spot these things. Well, go, talk about that a little more. Um you know, get, if you don't mind, just be a little more specific about what, what you just said. I want to hear more about that. Well, the, the term mental illness is confusing. And yeah. clearly, a happy, well-adjusted person does not come to see mass murder as a solution to their personal problems. So we can say that, yes, mass killers are not well people in that way. But they're not delusional. They're not even necessarily depressed, although some of them are. Um, it's more these innate personality qualities that we do spot. We can spot them in children often, you know, the kid that is bullying other kids. It's another um, common myth. I think it's a myth that all mass killers have been bullied. Many of them were bullies. 
You know, they were these odd kids that didn't fit in, but other kids were often scared of them. So sometimes they've been bullied. Sometimes they've been bullies themselves. And I think the idea that if we just stop bullying, this is all going to go away. That's another myth that we need. Of course, we want to stop bullying, of course, but that alone is not necessarily going to make a dent in this problem at all. That's interesting. And the, depre- the, the fact that they are not usually or necessarily depressed is also interesting. If you think about it, it makes sense. I mean, if you're suffering from depression, sometimes you, you can't even get out of bed. You don't even want to go take the garbage out. You know, right. you're not going to go assemble an arsenal and figure out this whole, um, it, it just requires more, you know, a, d- a different brain type than, than that. So. Yeah, it is different. And, and these guys are more apt to be angry than they are to display manifestations of depression. And maybe there's a core of depression going on underneath that. I don't know. But we do know that in the midst of these crimes, they seem to be experiencing an elevated mood. They feel powerful. They feel strong. You know, they've got the adrenaline going and they enjoy the experience. So Anytime we see a kid that we have questions about, and this is why I think it would be wonderful to have more mental health therapists in school, even if it's not a mentally ill kid, if it's a kid that's displaying some of these problematic personality qualities, a therapist can take a look at them, get to know them. And again, that's catching something on the pathway early and maybe redirecting them into things that are gonna be healthier activities. That's one of the things that I've done um, a lot in my work with teenagers is we've gotta find some things they enjoy. Not all kids love sports. Everybody says sports. Well, some kids love sports and that's great. My son was in chess club, you know? It just depends on what your kids enjoy. And we need more resources and as a community, to, you know, yes, there are single working parents who can't do a lot of supervision and we need as a community to come together and offer more after school activities and things. When kids are lonely, isolated, rather than sitting at home, just video gaming all the time or in these, you know, scary online communities of extremism, if we have things that kids can be involved in and with adults who are compassionate and want to make those heart to heart connections. I talk a lot about heart to heart connections, you know, because that is something that's very protective and we have no way of knowing. For, for sure, how many mass killings are interrupted every day just mm. because somebody, it may have been a neighbor or an aunt or somebody who made a heart-to-heart connection with a kid and they changed their mind about something that they were thinking. That's a good point. That's a good point. I, I've seen, you know, again, this is anecdotal and just by having two kids who were in high school, but my, the way that I see how things have changed is there doesn't seem to be as much emphasis on these big group get out activities. Like I don't, when I was a kid, every, everybody played baseball every, right. in little league, even I'm terrible, but I played my parents. Maybe it's just, everybody just, it was like yeah. military service, you know? Yeah. And that isn't a thing anymore. People do no. sports obviously, but it's not, at least in my mind, it isn't as all encompassing as it used to be. And, um, you know, I see that with, it, we used to play in bands all the time. I was just going to say music. Yeah. Music not, has always been a thing. Yeah. That seems not to be as popular as it right. used to be, or at least right. rock music is, I think because rock music isn't uh, as popular as it used to be, there's no need to go learn how to play. Like, exactly. Electric yeah. So, but that, those things are all great 
outlets for for all of these things for aggression for loneliness exactly for, you know. exactly to to develop a peer group of of a, people a group you know you don't all have to be the same but have a variety of people in a peer yeah. group rather than some kind of weird extremist little niche that you find online where everybody's validating yeah we hate women you know i mean whatever that little weird niche is that people find yeah and it's hard to as a parent it's hard i I've re I read this book uh, years ago called Far From the Tree. Do you know that book? I, that sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah it's, it's the guy who wrote it is, I forget if he's a psychologist or just somebody that studied it. But the, his idea was that each, there's different kinds of kids that parents have that are so different from the parents in fundamental ways that it's challenging to raise them. Yes. So, um, you know, like, autism was one of the one of the categories. Yes. When, when the kids are deaf and the parents aren't or vice versa, right. that different so there's a whole bunch of these things um where the parents just can't they just don't understand it because it's not them and some of them are really you're reading it as a parent thinking okay i have my challenges but wow it'd be hard to do this uh, they interviewed one of the mothers of the columbine killers right mm -hmm. and, and she's a perfectly normal yeah lovely woman who did lovely woman i've seen her ted talk and, yeah and and it's like I, I was like gee, like i started crying almost now thinking about it like that that's the worst thing that you can be you Absolutely. Know, as a parent, yeah. that's like your worst fucking nightmare. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Now, I was going to ask you before, you've done a lot of work with these individual people after they've committed these crimes. So I always wonder that, like, okay, some guy comes in, does his thing, and then they're in prison forever. So we never really usually hear from them again. But mm -hmm. do they generally experience regret because now they have no freedom or would they do it again or how to, you know, what, what is their thought process after generally, or maybe there is no general. I don't know. Yeah. You know, I, I think, you know, there's probably a lot of jokes that can be made about jailhouse regret. Right. I think whenever people are incarcerated, um, well, yeah, they, they regret it at some point. I think the people who had psychosis, I mean, I don't have to think, I know, they yeah. regret it tremendously because they were operating, you know, very often. Well, God was commanding me to, you know, kill the demons or whatever. So I walked into this room and and they once they're in treatment and their brain has recovered and they're no longer delusional, they regret it terribly. And um, I've supervised some of those people in a conditional release program in California after they got out of prison and were under supervision and were safe to be back in the community again. And so sometimes people can come back into the community and after a period of, you know, doing many years in prison and can function and be okay again. Um, as far as the hardcore psychopathic people, um, I would say they know the right thing to say if they're talking to um, a therapist in, in jail or in prison. Um, so I think everybody will often express remorse um, unless they're incredibly narcissistic and proud of themselves. The Norwegian killer um, mm. who's quite notorious um, politically motivated violence over there trying to, as a, as a Knight Templar, which he considers himself trying to drive the Muslims out of Europe, right? Um, he came up for review recently. Apparently in Norway, you have to do a, a complete review every de decade of a person who's incarcerated and made a point that he was quite proud of what he had done and would definitely do it again. And if he gets out, you know, that will be his plan to do it again. So you do see a gamut from people who will at least express remorse to those who continue to be proud of what they did and say it was the right thing. Interesting. 
I, I just wish that they thought more. I guess they can't think through that far ahead. I don't know. It, it, it's. Uh, I think, you know, at least half of them are suicidal when they do this. Mm. And there's a type of adolescent fantasy that goes with suicidal ideation a lot. It's where they actually think they're going to be watching or observing life after they're dead. And of course, I think most adults would say, you probably shouldn't plan on that, you know, um, when you're dead, you're dead. Yeah. But it's almost as if they see themselves as, as they do see themselves as action movie heroes, right? And and that they're going to be watching this scene. And even when the cops show up and kill them, there's going to be this grand moment after that when they're going to be famous. And they're just not quite connecting the dots that know you're going to be dead, you know? Yeah. Yeah, well, there's, like you said, there's an awful lot of movies where people go down in a blaze of glory, so to speak, Butch Cassidy and whatever, that, that kind of it, ending. That's part of the script. Yeah, in the yeah. Uvalde case, um, one of the little girls, I heard her interviewed on the news, and she said that the guy had, you know, basically killed everyone, thought he had killed everyone in these two classrooms, and then was like just parading around with his gun and playing a certain kind of music over and over and it was like here's his production he was the star of the movie you know and i don't know what the music was but obviously it had some incredible symbolic meaning to him so very often they are not planning to be in prison it's like this is the culmination of their life and they're going to go out as this this hero yeah and as perverse as it is for us to think how can you see yourself as a hero when you do this awful thing again there are internet communities where they venerate each other and they call each other the hero the saint the warrior you know and they're willing to die for that well i mean i think in their mind it's just it's dehumanizing and they dehumanize the the victims because it's mm -hmm. often with these shootings aren't people that they know no, generally they're not. Yeah. The exception to that are, are workplace shooters. You know, workplace shooters yeah. are typically people who have had a, a grievance for many years. They've been fired or disciplined in some way, and then they come back with a very specific hit list, basically. But they have the very the same similar personality type as the other folks do, but it's just kind of a different setting. So we're at the point now, like I said, where the Senate is controlled by Republicans because even though we have the, the, the Schumer is the majority leader, nothing can happen without the stupid filibuster going under. That's not going to happen as long as Manchin and, and, and cinema are around. So nothing's going to get voted on unless Mitch McConnell says so. The, the NRA, which was infiltrated by Russia and funded heavily by, you know, Putin. I, I, my personal thing is that Putin and, and our enemies want these school shootings to happen and want these mass shootings to happen because it makes us look bad and it, cre it creates chaos and it creates yeah. um, you know disputes between us and it's like a big wedge issue. And it's good for them. It makes them look less bad. Like Putin can say, we don't have this in our country. Yeah. You know? yeah. So yeah. that's what they want. And by abetting it, um, you know, these Republicans are basically doing the work of these of these dictators and uh yeah. you know that's maybe not good but that's not something that most people can i think wrap their minds around but every yeah, time it's, shooting, it's true especially in in a in an elementary school i mean the evaldi thing is uh, they're all awful and i don't want to minimize anybody dying in this horrible way but 
to do it in an elementary school is just about as awful as it gets. Yeah, it's really sadistic and barbaric, and it terrifies the populace. It, it yeah. terrifies people. I, I, people are emailing me their um, posters from their school that you know everybody's got new posters up about what to do, you know, when the shooter comes in or whatever. It's just people are really frightened from you know kids to teachers to parents, um, people in hospitals. There have been a number of mass yeah. killings in hospitals. You know, um, I, I see therapists as my clients and one said to me last week, I don't know how to help people feel safe because I don't feel safe. You know, I feel like we're in danger everywhere. Yeah, so I'm I mean, sure that our enemies think that that's just a terrific place for America to be. We're not coming from a position of strength with this, you know? No, we're, we're, we're coming from a position of weakness and capitulation to either the people that make the guns, or I don't even know, I don't know what their calculus is. But at this point, if, if, if the Republicans wanted this to end, they would have ended it because they have yeah. the power to end it tomorrow. And of course, at least ending the supply side, like the, the yes. AR-15 style weapon um, is the weapon of choice for a vast percentage of these mass shootings. And if we just didn't have those, that would stop if you, you know, not that right, the, the right. shootings would, the mass killings would continue, but the, it would just be less. It would certainly put the, it would slow, slow it down. It would put the brakes on. And in the city of Denver last summer, um, there was the shooting at the King Supers supermarket. And um, the city of Denver had banned the sale of assault weapons in the city limits. And the week that that ban was lifted, the uh, killer from the King Super shooting went and bought locally, right near him, the AR-15 that he used just like three or four days later. So it would definitely slow things down. And obviously, if there were one thing we could do to fix it, ban video games or whatever, you know, if we could do one thing, that would be great. But it's going to be a variety of things. But the biggest and, and most impactful thing we can do would be to stop the easy accessibility of these incredibly destructive weapons of war. That would be the biggest thing that would make a difference. And then do the other things too, you know, more yeah. clinicians in public schools, better support for teachers, more support for kids in the community with after school activities, making our communities more welcoming. Um, but a lot of these guys, you know, again, it goes back to, um, it's hard to say what went wrong, like in the Buffalo case, um, apparently a very nice family. You know, this wasn't a kid from a, a poor area. Um, his parents were quite well off, both civil engineers, and a lot of these kids have been well loved. And so then that goes into what did they get into online that started this violent extremism. So we have to do as much as we can in different ways. And then, of course, anytime we see something, report it to the platform if it's in social media, report, call 1-800-CALL-FBI, call your local law enforcement, talk to people's family members, you know, um, because you never know. It is just going to be one thing that somebody does that causes the interruption in that pathway to violence. Yeah. Um, to your point, and what we were talking about, about banning the guns, that the shooter in Uvalde, bought, he had asked his sister to buy him the gun when he was still underage. And she said no. And then he had to wait until he was 18 to go buy it. So like, the laws do work. You know, they even work. That, even that law worked. It, it prevented this from happening six months or whatever. Um, it, even raising the age to 21 would probably help. That would that would stop some. That would stop some. Yeah. I just saw a statistic last week that 
um, since California enacted red flag laws, um, 58 school shootings were interrupted because somebody had made a report. 58 school shootings interrupted. That's significant, That's you know, just in one state. Yeah. So it does. Everything we can possibly do will make a difference. And I think everybody can do something. As I say, even if it's it's just you vote, you contact your legislators with your, you know, um, expressed opinions on gun safety laws, red flag laws. Um, and, and as I say, making connections with kids, you know, yeah. and kids that are isolated. Everybody can do something. And I think that was one of my big uh, things I wanted to stress in the book. It's we're not helpless here and it shouldn't be hopeless. If everybody does something, we will make a difference. And we have no way of knowing, as I say, how many um, kids are, their lives are changed. They go on a different path just because somebody took some time, you know? Yeah, no, it's important. Um, one more thing I wanted to ask you, this isn't in the book, but in the again, in the aftermath of Uvalde, there's been some people suggesting that seeing some of the bodies would be helpful for people because it's been described the damage that these weapons do, but to actually see it yeah. would blow people's minds to the point where yeah. everyone would be like, "What the? What are you doing? We have to do this right now." What What do you think about that? Is that something that we should do? Is it? Well, you know, I. I would have probably been skeptical of that until I saw, um, and I'll tell you what image I saw. It was during the Kyle Rittenhouse um, footage when yeah. that shooting happened and the footage of the guy's bicep when Kyle shot him with that gun in the arm. I was shocked. I mean, that uh, the damage is unbelievable. And what we see in the movies all the time, oh, it's a flesh wound. He was hit. He's still running along and, yeah. and absolutely fine. And no, those weapons just blow holes in people. They blow chunks of the body away. And I was shocked when I saw that. Um, and so I think when we look at what is going to wake people up here, there may be some merit to that, you know? Yeah. There may be. Because we we too often we take what we see on television or in movies as, you know, oh, well, so you get shot. No big deal. Um, no, this kind of weaponry is it's in a different category. It's, yeah, it's absolutely a, horrifying. I mean, it's not it's certainly it's not what what the founding fathers were using when the Second Amendment was written. Yeah. And their side seems to forget that the second word of the Second Amendment is well regulated. But. You know, I, I, I yeah, I don't get that at all. The, we're not dealing with well-regulated militias here. You've got, you know, um, out of control, uh, dangerous, criminally minded people um, hoarding weapons of war and no regulation whatsoever. It's it's really horrifying. And I just hope people can feel motivated and activated to make a difference and not just throw up their hands and say, there's nothing we can do. There's so much we can do. It's a lot, you know, but everybody yeah. just pick one or two things and even just spread the word about, um, you know, how do you make a report? I think that's important. And if you make one report, don't just stop with a tip, you know, tip line call to the FBI, call your local law enforcement too. Um, because it, you just never know. And if somebody's joking or whatever, well, then they'll, they'll, someone will talk to them about, we can't joke about things like that. And, you know, it may stop somebody who was thinking about it and they may take a different path. 
So give us like the top, like anybody listening to this podcast right now, um, that's one thing that people can do. Give us like two more things that normal average people can do to help. Um, I would say support the organizations like um, the Brady Campaign or the Giffords Law Center or Sandy Hook Promise. I am supporting all those organizations. Anything you can do locally with gun safety um, restrictions. Um, red flag laws are incredibly important. And, you know, continue to talk about it. I think we tend to, it's in the news a lot, and then we tend to have it slide out of our consciousness. And then everybody just kind of goes around with their fingers crossed thinking, well, let's just hope it doesn't happen again. It may not happen again. It probably won't happen again. It's going to happen again. Um, I'm hoping to start a group, you know, how people have their monthly book clubs or whatever. I'm in two or three different book clubs all the time. I would like to start a group where it's a one, once a month get together. And what are we going to do about mass shooting and gun safety and where everybody comes together with an idea and each month we do letters or we do you know some kind of support for our local teachers um, but everybody stay aware and realize that this is in every community every community is at risk and um, we used to think oh well you know all the crime is in big urban areas i'm in portland we certainly have enough here but i just read today again there's a little uh, farming community about 20 30 miles outside of our city limits and there was an interrupted mass shooting there a couple of weeks ago so i think everybody just stay aware keep talking about it and keep looking at solutions and definitely use the tip line um, if we can, every school district should have um, an anonymous tip line. And if you can encourage your local school districts to make sure that they have that, because kids are more likely to report on a peer if they can do it anonymously. So anonymous tip lines are very important too. That's a great, that's a great idea. Um, yeah, you mentioned it fading from consciousness. I remember reading a study or that was circulating on Twitter that said that it takes basically three days after a shooting for people yeah. to just kind of stop yeah. feeling emotionally about it and move on, which is, right. you know, that, that's just what happens. It's sad, but these are all great ideas. And thank you for, you know, for writing the book and for devoting your time and expertise to this. Um, how can we find you? Are you on Twitter? I am on Twitter. I'm not very active on Twitter. Um, I'm on Facebook and okay. um, I have, and you a, have website. a website. What's your website? Yep. You can get to it from a variety of domains. P, initial P, Siobhan Scott, S-H-A-V-A-U-N-S-C-O-T-T dot com. Um, also, um, the Minds of Mass Killers dot com is the book. You can get there that way. Okay. The book is called The Minds of Mass Killers, Understanding and Interrupting the Pathways to Violence. Siobhan Scott, thanks so much for taking the time today. This was great. Thank you for talking about it. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fassa. Sofia Tereshenko provided the Russian introduction. Voice talent is provided by Tally Briggs, Sigmund Della, Stephanie St. John, Brett Petticord, Ryan Byrne at History Falls Apart, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kanai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail website with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the site and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. Until next time, we shall prevail. <laughs>